This is Chapter Eleven of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter Eleven. And sure enough, two or three years afterward, we did hear him again. News came to the Pacific Coast that the Vigilance Committee in Montana, whither Slade had removed from Rocky Ridge, had hanged him. I find an account of the affair in the thrilling little book I quoted a paragraph from in the last chapter, The Vigilantes of Montana, being a reliable account of the capture, trial, and execution of Henry Plummer's notorious road agent band by Professor Thomas J. Dimsdale, Virginia City, Montana. Mr. Dimdale's chapter is well worth reading as a specimen of how the people of the frontier deal with criminals when the courts of law prove inefficient. Mr. Dimsdale makes two remarks about Slade, both of which are accurately descriptive, and one of which is exceedingly picturesque. Those who saw him in his natural state only would pronounce him to be a kind husband, a most hospitable host, and a courteous gentleman. On the contrary, those who met him when maddened with liquor and surrounded by a gang of armed roughs would pronounce him a fiend incarnate. And this, from Fort Kearney, west, he was feared a great deal more than the Almighty. For compactness, simplicity, and vigor of expression, I will back that sentence against anything in literature. Mr. Dimsdale's narrative is as follows. In all places where italics occur, they are mine. After the execution of the five men on the 14th of January, the vigilantes considered that their work was nearly ended. They had freed the country of highwaymen and murderers to a great extent, and they determined that in the absence of the regular civil authority they would establish a people's court where all offenders should be tried by judge and jury. This was the nearest approach to social order that the circumstances permitted, and, though strict legal authority was wanting, yet the people were firmly determined to maintain its efficiency, and to enforce its decrees. It may here be mentioned that the overt act, which was the last round on the fatal ladder leading to the scaffold on which Slade perished, was the tearing in pieces and stamping upon a writ of this court followed by his arrest of the Judge Alexander Davis, by authority of a presented Derringer, and with his own hands. J. A. Slade was himself, we have been informed, a vigilante. He openly boasted of it, and said he knew all that they knew. He was never accused, or even suspected, of either murder or robbery committed in this territory. The latter crime was never laid to his charge in any place but that he had killed several men in other localities was notorious, and his bad reputation in this respect was a most powerful argument in determining his fate, when he was finally arrested for the offense above mentioned. On returning from Milk River, he became more and more addicted to drinking, until at last it was a common feat for him and his friends to take the town. He and a couple of his dependents might often be seen on one horse, galloping through the streets, shouting and yelling, firing revolvers, etc. On many occasions he would ride his horse into stores, break up bars, toss the scales out of doors, and use most insulting language to parties present. Just previous to the day of his arrest he had given a fearful beating to one of his followers, 
but such was his influence over them that the man wept bitterly at the gallows and begged for his life with all his power. It had become quite common, when Slade was on a spree, for the shopkeepers and citizens to close the stores and put out all the lights, being fearful of some outrage at his hands. For his wanton destruction of goods and furniture he was always ready to pay, when sober, if he had the money. But there were not a few who regarded payment as small satisfaction for the outrage, and these men were his personal enemies. From time to time Slade received warnings from men that he well knew would not deceive him of the certain end of his conduct. There was not a moment for weeks previous to his arrest in which the public did not expect to hear of some bloody outrage. The dread of his very name, and the presence of the armed band of hangers-on who followed him alone prevented a resistance which must certainly have ended in the instant murder or mutilation of the opposing party. Slade was frequently arrested by order of the court, whose organization we have described, and had treated it with respect by paying one or two fines and promising to pay the rest when he had money. But in the transaction that occurred at this crisis he forgot even this caution, and goaded by passion and the hatred of restraint, he sprang into the embrace of death. Slade had been drunk and cutting up all night. He and his companions had made the town a perfect hell. In the morning J. M. Fox, the sheriff, met him, arrested him, took him into court, and commenced reading a warrant that he had for his arrest by way of arraignment. He became uncontrollably furious, and, seizing the writ, he tore it up, threw it on the ground, and stamped upon it. The clicking of the locks of his companions' revolvers was instantly heard, and a crisis was expected. The sheriff did not attempt his retention. But, being at least as prudent as he was valiant, he succumbed, leaving Slade the master of the situation, and the conqueror and ruler of the courts, law and law-makers. This was a declaration of war, and was so accepted. The Vigilance Committee now felt that the question of social order and the preponderance of the law-abiding citizens had then and there to be decided. They knew the character of Slade, and they were well aware that they must submit to his rule without murmur, or else that he must be dealt with in such fashion as would prevent his being able to wreak his vengeance on the committee, who could never have hoped to live in the territory secure from outrage or death, and who could never leave it without encountering his friend, whom his victory would have emboldened and stimulated to a pitch that would have rendered them reckless of consequences. The day previous he had ridden into Doris's store, and on being requested to leave he drew his revolver and threatened to kill the gentleman who spoke to him. Another saloon he had led his horse into, and, buying a bottle of wine, he tried to make the animal drink it. This was not considered an uncommon performance, as he had often entered saloons and commenced firing at the lamps, causing a wild stampede. A leading member of the committee met Slade, and informed him in the quiet, earnest manner of one who feels the importance of what he is saying, "'Slade, get your horse at once and go home, or there will be <clears throat> to pay.' Slade started, and took a long look, with his dark and piercing eyes, at the gentleman. "'What do you mean?' said he. "'You have no right to ask me what I mean,' was the quiet reply. "'Get your horse at once, and remember what I tell you.' After a short pause he promised to do so, and actually got into the saddle. But, being still intoxicated, he began calling aloud to one after another of his friends, 
and at last seemed to have forgotten the warning he had received, and became again uproarious, shouting the name of a well-known courtesan, in company, with those of two men whom he considered heads of the committee, as a sort of challenge, perhaps, however, as a simple act of bravado. It seems probable that the intimation of personal danger he had received had not been forgotten entirely. Though fatally for him he took a foolish way of showing his remembrance of it, he sought out Alexander Davis, the judge of the court, and, drawing a cocked derringer, he presented it at his head, and told him that he should hold him as a hostage for his own safety. As the judge stood perfectly quiet, and offered no resistance to his captor, no further outrage followed on this score. Previous to this, on account of the critical state of affairs, the committee had met, and at last resolved to arrest him. His execution had not been agreed upon, and, at that time, would have been negative most assuredly. A messenger rode down to Nevada to inform the leading men of what was on hand, as it was desirable to show that there was a feeling of unanimity on the subject, all along the gulch. The miners turned out almost en masse leaving their work, and forming in solid column about six hundred strong, armed to the teeth, they marched up to Virginia. The leader of the body well knew the temper of his men on the subject. He spurred on ahead of them, and hastily calling a meeting of the executive, he told them plainly that the miners meant business, and that if they came up, they would not stand in the street to be shot down by Slade's friends, but that they would take him and hang him. The meeting was small, as the Virginia men were loath to act at all. This momentous announcement of the feeling of the lower town was made to a cluster of men who were deliberating behind a wagon, at the rear of a store on Main Street. The committee were most unwilling to proceed to extremities. All the duty they had ever performed seemed as nothing to the task before them. But they had to decide, and that quickly. It was finally agreed that if the whole body of the miners were of the opinion that he should be hanged, that the committee left it in their hands to deal with him. Off at hot speed rode the leader of the Nevada men to join his command. Slade had found out what was intended, and the news sobered him instantly. He went into P. S. Fope's store, where Davis was, and apologized for his conduct, saying that he would take it all back. The head of the column now wheeled into Wallace Street, and marched up at quick time. Halting in front of the store, the executive officer of the committee stepped forward and arrested Slade, who was at once informed of his doom, and inquiry was made as to whether he had any business to settle. Several parties spoke to him on the subject, but to all such inquiries he turned a deaf ear, being entirely absorbed in the terrifying reflection on his own awful position. He never ceased his entreaties for life, and to see his dear wife. The unfortunate lady referred to, between whom and Slade there existed a warm affection, was at this time living at their ranch on the Madison. She was possessed of considerable personal attractions, tall, well-formed, of graceful carriage, pleasing manners, and was withal an accomplished horsewoman. A messenger from Slade rode at full speed to inform her of her husband's arrest. In an instant she was in the saddle, and with all the energy that love and despair could lend to an ardent temperament and a strong physique, she urged her fleet charger over the twelve miles of rough and rocky ground that intervened between her and the object of her passionate devotion. Meanwhile a party of volunteers had made the necessary preparations for the execution in the valley traversed by the branch. Beneath the site of Pfouts and Russell's stone building, 
There was a corral, the gate-posts of which were strong and high. Across the top was laid a beam, to which the rope was fastened, and a dry-goods box served for the platform. To this place Slade was marched, surrounded by a guard, composing the best armed and most numerous force that has ever appeared in Montana territory. The doomed man had so exhausted himself by tears, prayers, and lamentations, that he had scarcely strength left to stand under the fatal beam. He repeatedly exclaimed, "'My God! My God! Must I die? Oh, my dear wife!' On the return of the fatigue party, they encountered some friends of Slade, staunch and reliable citizens and members of the committee, but who were personally attached to the condemned. On hearing of his sentence, one of them, a stout-hearted man, pulled out his handkerchief and walked away weeping like a child. Slade still begged to see his wife most piteously, and it seemed hard to deny his request. But the bloody consequences that were sure to follow the inevitable attempt at a rescue that her presence and entreaties would have certainly incited forbade the granting of his request. Several gentlemen were sent for to see him in his last moments, one of whom, Judge Davis, made a short address to the people, but in such low tones as to be inaudible, save to a few in his immediate vicinity. One of his friends, after exhausting his powers of entreaty, threw off his coat and declared that the prisoner could not be hanged until he himself was killed. A hundred guns were instantly leveled at him, whereupon he turned and fled. But, being brought back, he was compelled to resume his coat, and to give a promise of future peaceable demeanor. Scarcely a leading man in Virginia could be found, though numbers of the citizens joined the ranks of the guard when the arrest was made. All lamented the stern necessity which dictated the execution. Everything being ready, the command was given, "'Men, do your duty!' And the box being instantly slipped from beneath his feet, he died almost instantaneously. The body was cut down and carried to the Virginia Hotel, where, in a darkened room, it was scarcely laid out, when the unfortunate and bereaved companion of the deceased arrived, at headlong speed, to find that all was over, and that she was a widow. Her grief and heart-piercing cries were terrible evidences of the depth of her attachment for her lost husband, and a considerable period elapsed before she could regain the command of her excited feelings. There is something about the desperado nature that is wholly unaccountable, at least it looks unaccountable. It is this. The true desperado is gifted with splendid courage, and yet he will take the most infamous advantage of his enemy. Armed and free, he will stand up before a host and fight until he is shot all to pieces, and yet when he is under the gallows and helpless, he will cry and plead like a child. Words are cheap, and it is easy to call Slade a coward. All executed men who do not die game are promptly called cowards by unreflecting people. And when we read of Slade that he had so exhausted himself by tears, prayers, and lamentations that he had scarcely strength left to stand under the fatal beam, the disgraceful word suggests itself in a moment. Yet, in frequently defying and inviting the vengeance of banded Rocky Mountain cutthroats by shooting down their comrades and leaders, and never offering to hide or fly, Slade showed that he was a man of peerless bravery. No coward would dare that. Many a notorious coward, many a chicken-livered poltroon, coarse, brutal, degraded, 
has made his dying speech without a quaver in his voice, and been swung into eternity with what looked like the calmest fortitude, and so we are justified in believing, from the low intellect of such a creature, that it was not moral courage that enabled him to do it. Then, if moral courage is not the requisite quality, what could it have been that this stout-hearted slade lacked, this bloody, desperate, kindly-mannered, urbane gentleman, who never hesitated to warn his most ruffianly enemies that he would kill them whenever or wherever he came across them next? I think it is a conundrum worth investigating. End of chapter 11